you're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 158th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, we're concluding our topic on mental health and choice theory with an interview with my friend and colleague, Leonard Citron. Leonard is a licensed mental health therapist and a partner at Citron Hennessy Therapy. He is also a fellow of the Albert Ellis Institute and an adjunct professor at New York University. Leonard draws upon a multimodal approach with a specialization in cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavior therapy, and last but not least, reality therapy. I would also add that the therapists in his practice are some of the best trained therapists anywhere. Leonard, thanks so much for joining us today, particularly since it's your day off. Thanks for the lovely introduction, Kim. Good to be here. And uh, a happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, we were recording mm. Mother's Day. So shout out to all mothers out there. Thank you. And I'm sure the mothers listening will be happy to hear that. So we had talked about doing a podcast to talk about what it is you like about choice theory. I know that you offer it to all of your interns as a training. And I'd really like to start with where did this all start with you? How did you get on the choice theory path? When I did the LMHC program at New York University, I specialized in uh, REBT at the uh, Ellis Institute post-graduation. It was an amazing learning experience, uh, which really taught me how to look at human behavior. It really promoted the idea that you know, we were the agents of change in our own life, uh, what we talk about as an internal locus of control. My mentor at the time said, oh, if you like this, you're going to love William Glasser, Choice Theory, Reality Therapy. And off I went on a three-day training with Bob Wobelding in New Jersey. And that was, I think, 2019. And it's been uh, all go moving forward ever since. As another theory, I think it's very complementary to REBT for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. What we want to specialize in when we're training our clinicians is how to think about their clients. That's one of the main reasons why we offer it as a training so that we're all speaking the same language. So when your clinicians come to you, you often get interns who are still pursuing their degree. And you train them in both choice theory and rational emotive behavior therapy. Is that right? That's correct. In the beginning, as I understand it, you started them with REBT, and then you followed up with choice theory. And now you've switched those two. Can you help me understand the logic behind why you'd now teach choice theory first? Sure. If I step back a little... And you and I have had this conversation in the past. The thing that I really love about choice theory and reality therapy is that I believe it provides hope to our clients. As I mentioned in our last conversation, you know, hope tends to be the only thing that's stronger than fear. 
And our clients come to us with a lot of fear, fear of change, fear of failure, conceptualizing clients and their challenges through a choice theory lens is very empowering and motivating. And I really believe that that helps create a level of hope. Now, we tried to start all our new clinicians with REBT and the three-day training there. But what we found is that people got too focused on doing it right and didn't focus enough on the relationship part. So we decided that we would swap around the trainings so that a relationship building could be emphasized. And then from that, we would add back in more of the theoretical orientation. I like that. I want to share a little anecdote that I heard Dr. Glasser once say. He and Albert Ellis were colleagues and friends and sometimes shared a stage. And they had a conversation. And back in the day, Albert Ellis used to call what he did rational emotive therapy. And after a conversation with Glasser, and Glasser talked to him about total behavior, Ellis changed it to REBT. So those two really do have a connection. So it's not surprising to me that you've found them to be complementary languages. So Leonard, I know you're talking about the importance of relationship, and that is definitely something that underscores the reality therapy process. How do you see this impacting trust in the therapy room? I spoke earlier about this idea of creating hope with our clients and creating hope you are going to be suggesting they do things that might originally make them uncomfortable. The only way someone is going to allow themselves become uncomfortable is if they trust you. When I do interviews with new clinicians, they always say, why is the relationship part the most important part, regardless of the theoretical modality? And I really do believe that it's trust. So we have to spend time creating that relationship with our clients. And then once the trust is developed, we can start including behaviors and modifications that would develop that feeling of hope. Clinicians in general sometimes hyper-focus inwards on what we're doing in the room. Are we implementing the strategies correctly? And I think that takes the focus off the client, which is why we also swap the trainings around. Have you been doing that long enough to see if that has been beneficial? Our sample size is still quite limited. What I will say is that in the two years that we've done this, the level of clients terminating within the first three sessions has dramatically reduced. I don't have a percentage for you. But what we found is on the second year, when we started with choice theory, a lot more clinicians retained their clients than the previous year. That's interesting. I think we should do a study on that. You talked about relationship being the most important thing, and I just mentioned research. So I'd just like to underscore that point, that the research shows repeatedly that it really doesn't matter the theory you're using. It's about the strength of the relationship you build with your clients that's so important. And in reality therapy, we've been focused on relationship building for a very long time. 
Do you notice that there's anything specific or unique about building relationship in a reality therapy session that might be different from what your clinicians are learning at their university programs? Off the top of my head, I would say that one of the things that really differentiates what our students are getting in university versus the training that choice theory offers is the model on human behavior. We've talked about hope and we've talked about trust, but clients often say, how long do I need to be here? What they're really looking for is, is this normal? And have you worked with this before? Some people might not like the model of choice theory or may not agree with it 100%. But if you are confident in a model that you can communicate in normal language to your clients, that will again lead to the trust the hope, because they will believe that you know what you are talking about. And hopefully you will, maybe through a choice theory lens and not through other theories, but you understand where I'm going with this. And the thing I think that really helps in all of this is understanding the five basic needs, survival, belonging, power, freedom and fun, and the quality world pictures that go along with trying to get these needs met. This is why, again, I link the whole hope and trust. Some people may never have actually spent time working out what their hierarchy of needs are or what their quality world pictures would look like. By starting there, you are, again, creating the hope. What would your life look like if all your needs were met? And I know I'm preaching to the converted with these questions But they are extremely powerful questions. And it also shows a huge amount of interest in the client. What would you be like if everything was going well? As a therapist, we want to model the type of way we would like our clients to speak to themselves. Asking the question, modeling, asking the question, all go into helping the relationship building, the trust and the hope. I like that very much. You know, I do speak into the choir. I am a total choice theory convert and anyone who's ever heard me on the podcast know that that's true. But not everybody who listens to my podcast are choice theory people. So this is news to some people. And I'm wondering, one of the things that I think is so important when someone claims to be a choice theory advocate is that they're on a path or a journey to living their life in a choice theory way. So that when their clients look at them, they see someone who may actually be struggling with some of the same things they are, but they are on a path to living a particular way. Do you have a way of defining what that looks like when somebody's doing their best to live consistently? Living a choice theory life is something that is not able to be done consistently and perfectly, but Is the person working to be better at it than they were the day before? What would it look like if someone were actually living their life in a choice theory way, from your perspective? I have to steal from William Glasser here. It was a video that I saw of him, which really resonated with me. And I'm sure I'll butcher the example, but I'll do my best to communicate it clearly. External control psychology, trying to make other people do what you want them to. Dr. Glasser talks about a husband and wife, and the husband says to the wife that he commits to not criticizing her. And the wife turns around and says, well, that's all very good. And I'd like to see that. And I appreciate that. But I suppose you want me to stop criticizing you. 
And the husband says, actually, no, I'm just making this commitment to you. You are free to make whatever choices you want. I really loved that clip because it speaks to our ability to really only change and control ourselves. If I was looking for changes in clients or myself, probably better to talk about myself, moving in a direction of living a choice theory life would be a reduction in trying to exert external control over people. And you're probably going to ask me, well, how would you do that? The nuance part of the theory, because choice theory, it can be abstract and philosophical, but there's also quite a concrete part in the execution Things like focusing on engaging in relationships that are in the best interest of the relationship rather than always the best interest of the person. Now, having a good relationship, Dr. Glasser would argue, is in the best interest of the person. So maybe it's a twofer there. Some of the things I've tried to reduce would be things like complaining and nagging and blaming and criticizing we're so used to is bribing or rewarding to control. You see that even in Pavlov's dogs and gold stars and schools. In my journey, I've tried to reduce them while also at the same time trying to listen more, be more accepting, supporting, encouraging. One of the things that has been so helpful in my journey so far is really getting behind the idea that people are making the best choice they can for themselves in the moment with the information they have. If they had more information, they may make a different choice. Again, speaking from experience, I would not be telling the truth if I said, you know, sometimes I've personalized experiences that have happened to me or I've thought of them happening to me. And it's just been so much better for my relationships when I think about it, how I've just described that people are getting their own needs met. And it's been extremely helpful working with clients. Does choice theory provide any structure, if you will, or language to help with case conceptualization? And if so, how? People who've worked with me in the past will know that I'm all about the case conceptualization it was something that was focused on in my training. And then I was lucky enough, thanks to a colleague and friend, I'm going to give him a shout out here, Anthony Frere of the Soho Centre, who's an adjunct at NYU, who was very kind enough to put my name forward. And I have been at NYU teaching internship for nearly five years now. One of the things that I saw very early on was new clinicians. All they'd want to talk about is skills and tools, skills and tools. They didn't have a fully formed understanding of what was driving the behavior. Skills and tools are great. However, if a client turns around and says, why are you asking me to do this? Talk me through the logic. You've got to be able to answer that question or the thing you're asking them to do is not going to work. We call that the buy-in. Before we ask our clients to do anything, we have to make sure that they believe that what we're asking them is going to be helpful to them. My belief is that if you have a proper understanding or grasp of a model of human behavior, that's how to really help your clients. So the whole model of choice theory, I think, is very helpful. It looks at what a client believes a satisfying life would look like. 
and also uh, tries to fix any sort of blockages or errors along the way that the client thought might be more helpful or was more helpful at a certain time. It gives the clinician a great place to start from. The more data you get from answering some of those questions, the easier it becomes to create a treatment plan that is effective, but that is also flexible enough to be updated as the treatment progresses. Yeah. We were talking about skills and tools. And one of the things I think about is if you have a skill or a tool that isn't working and you don't have a theory behind it, then it makes it really difficult to know what to do next if all you have are skills and tools. But when you have theory and your skills and tools aren't working, then you get to go back to the theory and theorize, why isn't this working? And what should be my next step? I see them going hand in hand. The theory is really important from my perspective. You make a great point. An example just jumped into my mind. If a client tries to engage in a skill or a tool and it doesn't work or their behavior doesn't change, if you understand the theory, you will understand that the client is getting a different need met through the behavior that they're currently engaging in and they want that or they may want that more than the thing you are asking. But if you don't understand the theory, you're going, why aren't they changing? And you get frustrated and the client gets frustrated. But if the client can understand that they're not changing because they are actually getting a need met, then they can start focusing on that. Whenever I hear the question, why aren't they changing? That sounds like an external control question. Why don't I have the power to make this person change? We don't have the power because it's all about what is most attractive to them in that moment, what's most need satisfying to them in that moment. And what we're working towards may not be the thing that the client is working towards. When you're a therapist and you have an idea in your head, this is something that I tell your clinicians when I do my training with them. If you have an idea in your head about what's best for this client, That's a red flag for me because we can't know what's best for another person because we're not them. Their hopes, dreams, wishes, need, hierarchy, all of those things that work together to comprise a person are different for our clients than they are for us. Even though from the outside looking in, what they're doing might look absolutely nuts and what we're proposing would be so much better. We don't know that. We really don't know that. It's important for therapists to have the humility to understand that they are not the fixers, they are the facilitators. And when a client is ready, that's a whole nother thing we haven't talked about, but readiness for change. And they have at least slightly more hope than they have fear. That's when we can help them make the best decision for themselves, not necessarily the decision that we think they should make. That can be tough because therapists want to be the fixer. How do you help your clinicians when they're feeling frustrated about clients' lack of change? That is a very good question. I say to clients, therapy is simple but not easy. That speaks to what you just described a moment ago, of secondary gains and people trying to get needs met or a different need met more than what they say they want in therapy. That spills over to clinicians as well because they are human beings like everybody else. 
one of the things that I would try and do is help them see if they're frustrating themselves is in order to get one of their own quality world pictures met, perhaps of how they think they should be as a therapist. What normally happens, if I'm going to be honest, and I want to be honest, is that I offer the information with no emotional charge. Clinicians don't listen to me the first time around, which is probably very much what happens with our clients. And they continue to do the same thing and get frustrated. Then at some point when we talk about their own needs, it clicks. Again, the experiential part of the doing and learning happen. It's a parallel process with our clinicians and our clients. It really is. And you do it so well. So, Leonard, I hate to say this, but we're pretty much running out of time now. That's so fast. I know. I'd like to ask my guests if there's anything you'd like to add that we didn't get a chance to talk about. I'd like to sum up everything we've been talking about by referring to another internal locus of control type of therapy, logotherapy, existentialism, and Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl used to say, when man has a why, he can stand almost anyhow. I really do believe that choice theory and reality therapy help people create that why. It's not something that's taught in schools, even though I think it should be. It is a great way to work on making meaning and enjoying a fulfilling life. I completely agree with you. And I would add for our audience, Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist during World War II, and he was rounded up and placed in a concentration camp where he almost died and lost all family members and wrote an amazing book that I think all clinicians should read, Man's Search for Meaning. It has a lot of good things in that book for therapists, for anybody really, but especially for therapists. Leonard, do you have anything coming up either personally or at your practice that you'd like to tell the audience about? Let them know where you're located because we didn't talk about that. Sure. Our office is located in Manhattan in New York. We have a location on the west side on 7th Avenue and on the east side on 32nd and Madison Avenue. We have a virtual mindfulness group kicking off in June. So if anyone is interested in that, they can reach out to info at privatetherapy.com and we will send all the deets that way. Other than that, just looking forward to a lovely summer in the city. Sounds great. If anybody wanted to get in touch with you for any further information about choice theory, how would they do that? They can email me at Leonard at privatetherapy.com. Terrific. Leonard, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us today. I also appreciate the way in which you help your clients, but also the way in which you grow the clinicians that work with you. It's quite remarkable. Thank you for sharing your choice theory journey with our audience today. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when we'll be changing our topic to parenting and I'll be interviewing NKG, the parenting coach on Facebook and Instagram. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.